This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Jason DeRosso. Welcome to The Screen Show. There have been many films and TV shows where parents clash with their children over a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But what about when children object to the love lives of their mothers or fathers? Well, a film that comes to mind is Douglas Sirk's 1955 melodrama, All That Heaven Allows. You remember it starred Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson, and the children get particularly angsty over their mother's younger lover. And come to think of it, the fourth and final series of Succession is, of course, currently streaming around the world. And that is a show where a very powerful patriarch, Logan Roy, is continually popping up with new women on his arm, and it is a source of incredible tension between him and his adult children. Well, this week in Australian cinemas, a film from France explores this complex thematic terrain. It's called The Innocent, and it's directed and co-written by my first guest, Louis Gorel, who also casts himself as the lead. It's set in Lyon, and it centres on a depressed 30-something widower named Abel, who becomes upset to say the least, when his mother Sylvie, played by Anouk Grimberg, a drama teacher who works in prisons, marries one of her pupils, a man named Michel. This ex-con, played with gravelly charm by Rushdie Zem, is soon out of jail helping Sylvie plan a new venture, a florist shop in the centre of town. But Abel is not convinced by his new stepfather and teams up with his best friend Clemence, played by a delightful Noemi Merlon, to tail Michelle around town and they soon discover that Michelle has been meeting with some of his old underworld buddies. Just before you jump to any conclusions that this is going to be the kind of film that confirms our most pessimistic prejudices about criminals and prison, the film works to wrong-foot audiences who might sit in judgment of Michelle, turning the tables on any easy moral assumptions by implicating Abel and Clemence as unlikely accomplices in a shady venture which eventuates in the second half of the film. I'm not going to spoil it. Louis Garel is perhaps best known outside of France as an actor with over 40 credits to his name. He started out as a child in his father Philippe Garel's 1989 experimental drama Le Baiser de Secours, Emergency Kisses, before garnering mainstream attention in the Anglophone world with Bertolucci's 2003 French New Wave tribute The Dreamers. Garel has developed a reputation as a tall, dark and hunky lead, but this is an oversimplification of his on-screen presence. He possesses a haunted quality that can sometimes read as awkwardness, and in roles that straddle drama and comedy, such as this one, he can be very funny. As you'll hear, Garel drew inspiration for The Innocent, his fourth film, from his real-life mother, actor and filmmaker Brigitte C., And the idea of acting as a central metaphor to the film's exploration of honesty and deception comes from her. In the film's climactic sequence, a comic and suspenseful heist, acting also allows characters to express romantic emotions that they'd otherwise repress. And here I have to give praise to the performance of Noemi Merlon, who, of course, recently played Lydia Tarr's brooding assistant and before that was a lead in Celine Chama's 2019 queer period romance, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
she's almost unrecognisable in The Innocent as the happy-go-lucky foil to Louis Garrel's depressed anti-hero. She won Best Supporting Actress at the French Academy Awards, or César's, for this role, and the film won Best Original Screenplay. It's thanks to her that The Innocent finally finds its true target, not as a caper movie per se, but as a touching and funny genre-crossing film about love and the links we sometimes have to go to find it. Louis Gorel is coming up. T'es sorti quand déjà de prison? Il y a une semaine. Qu'est-ce que tu vas faire maintenant pour gagner ta vie? Là, je vais faire un peu d'intérim. Celui avec le col roulé noir, là, tu le vois, là? Oh putain! Quoi? Mais les canons! Sylvie! Et qu'il est le troisième en dix ans, tu l'as prévenu aussi ou pas? C'est pas une prison, c'est un club de rencontre. Je suis ta mère! Quand je m'en fous, t'es complètement folle! On m'a dit, c'est quoi cette fois-ci? C'est le smartphone? Du caviar. 3000 euros le kilo <rire> Tu appelles tout de suite et tu dis oui En plus, vous faites ça en famille Louis Garel, welcome to the screen show. Hello, thank you very much. Thank you to, to, uh, thanks to have me. I want to ask, first of all, how autobiographical this film is. I, and I'm wondering in particular if you can tell me about how much inspiration you took from your own mother for the on-screen mother in, in this film. Yes, yes. No, I mean, in the beginning, you know, I, I just, um, I just took a, an autobiographical point because when I was uh, like seventeen, eighteen, my mother married a guy in jail. So this is the point, the, the the beginning of the film. And then after, I changed everything, of course, because I was super worried that the the audience would be, um, I don't know, interested about the film. So the film is much more full of adventures and everything that didn't happen in real life. But the, just the beginning is, is, is real. Maybe after the character of the mother, she's a bit crazy, she's lovely, she's warmful, she's, I don't know, she's uh, also non-conventional and she's wild and everything. Of course, that I have been inspired by, by my mother, but not only uh, about her. I mean, about, I, 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 know, I know so many, so many women like this. And, and I, I wanted to to do the the portrait of this kind of woman of sixty years old. <laughs> but, but and we'll get into some of those other themes in the film in a moment. But I just wanted to just ask one more question about your mother. So she was she's obviously a, an actor and a filmmaker. But she, like mm -hmm. the character in this film, was teaching acting in prisons. Yes, she was teaching acting in prisons for fifteen years. She was doing not only teaching, she was doing also shows. So when I was a kid, I was seeing my mother struggling and asking money from the Minister of Justice, from the Minister of Culture. It was very hard for her to to finance all the shows who were that the that, that the prisoners are were performing in the jail. So she was she, she was doing like a she was super inspired by Jean Genet. All the time, because Jean Genet was a is a major French writer who was some, a prisoner and one of the most powerful writer in France, you know, and he wrote a lot about the prison and everything. So she made like uh, complete shows in in prison, not only just small class of teaching. No, no, she she performed two hours shows in jail in many jails, jails for women, jails for men. So she's a she she was an activist, <laughs> yeah, you know about. Uh, um, so trying to understand what is this, um, what was that, uh, um, this lieu, how do you say that, this, um, this um, um, houses, you know? 
Yeah. Do you, I mean the character the character you play in this film mm-hmm. is quite scandalised, really, or, or very concerned. Let's put it this way: when when his mother yeah. marries one of her students in prison, who's about to get out of prison, an ex-con, mm-hmm. exactly. And and but but I'm wondering what did you? You must have met a lot of criminals and ex-criminals in your in your youth. Mm-hmm. What effect did that have on the way that you viewed the world? As opposed to, for example, someone who may have just grown up in an artistic family like your own and, and only met artists and so forth. Was there a difference between the two worlds that you observed? You know, uh, artists and, uh, and uh, prisoners sometimes, you know, are the same because everybody is lying. You know, all of them are lying sometimes but, and, and, and they are all playing roles, you know, because, for example, when you meet a guy who just came out uh, of a jail okay the, if you if you ask him about the reality about his uh, real real life you know he's all of, i mean it's terrible you know to to pass like 7 or 8 years in jail and everything but they also i mean the men that i met sometimes not all of them but sometimes you know they they knew how to uh, romance. How do you make to romant to romantize? Romanticize. How do you say to romanticize? Exactly. Yeah, they they were trying to romanticize their life, and they were building a kind of uh, legends of legends of themselves. You know, doing this kind of life and having this kind of life. So this is maybe the point that the common point that you can find between an actor and a guy who is just came out, coming out of jail i mean to giving to give a sense to his life he's trying to romanticize you know in his life or, myth, or mythologize the, and mythologize perhaps is another word yeah yeah to create a yes, story yes exactly mm. yeah exactly exactly but even you know my stepfather i mean the guy that my mother married it, it was a guy that i loved very much you know because he was I mean, a worker, and I mean, he had this, he had, he had done these bad things in his life, but he was also, he wanted, he wanted like a good life to, to win money and to get out from his social con- condition. But even after eight years of prison, you know, he was, was, he was explaining some stuff and I could see that he was still dreaming about legend who made the, the crime history in France, you know? So it was very strange because after eight years in prison, it's a, it's a, it's a very hard life you know but even after these 8 years in 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 a in a hard house like a prison he was still dreaming about his legends so this is the voila he was still he was still attracted to the certain romance of the uh, of the of the yes, out, of, of the outlaw i suppose yes of course of course um the themes of it's interesting you talk about that common point between criminals and and artists especially i suppose in the dramatic arts this um being one of lying or or make-believe or pretense and the themes of lies and deception animate your film and especially this question about whether a lie or even a crime done for good reasons done for noble reasons can ever be justified and this is an idea that almost every character in the film seems to be okay with they seem to be okay with okay we can lie we can maybe do a little crime if it's if if it's for a greater good um except yeah except for the mother in the film she can't seem to cope with this this level of deception and and i suppose this is where we get back to what you're wanting to communicate through this 
figure of the mother in your film. It seems to me to be a generational statement. What are you trying? Why can't this mother cope with lying, do you think? Because I think if you lie, I mean, it's different to to lie. Um, it's different the, the kind of lie that they are, the, all the, the three characters except the mother are doing for for the heist. You know, it's very it's very different that that than a lie between a couple. I mean, when you lie, I mean, you can lie, but it's it's more than a betrayal than than a lie. You know, yeah. Then she's 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 super offended, but because she feels betrayed, and when we feel betrayed, it's very hard to forgive. Um, it's very hard to. I don't exactly understand how to explain that, but it's true that the the feeling of betrayal. This is exactly what she what she what she was what she's feeling, because of course, I mean, they are all lying. They are all. I mean, the other characters are not lying. They are pretending and. And trying to to organize a heist for for a good reason, which is love. But I think the mother she feel offended because she's uh, she's not she was not included in the heist. You know, maybe. Uh, so maybe she felt that she. I mean, maybe she feels that she's not. Um, she was excluded. Yeah, ex- yeah, like Excluding. a kind of exclusion. In, uh, yeah, actually, this is a good question because I never think about that. Uh, I mean, to be honest. But it's it's just that maybe that I was inspired by my mother because my mother you can do everything that you want she's never offended she's never angry and everything excepting if you lie to her she she can becoming she can become completely cold and I don't know why yeah I mean I'm <laughs> I'm just wondering both your parents are very much the generation of sixty eight and and that's where mm-hmm. my previous question was going as well is there a generational are you making a comment on that generation and their relationship to deception and betrayal and issues of trust. Mm, this I don't know. No, it's 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 also an interpretation. No, no. I just wanted to make a movie about the wild mother and the conformist son, and what it is to be a conformist son who is trying to deal with the 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 the, the madness of his mom. Because it's not a madness, it's not a boring madness. It's a, um, it's an entertaining madness. It's but also, it passed through the limits sometimes. This one of the, the the kind of relation that I liked. Of course, it's also a story between the son who is becoming the father of his own mom. You know, but he's gonna he's gonna solve the, he's gonna solve these problems even if in 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 a big. Uh, in a big, a, a strange advent, adventure, you know, and also for the generation of the the, the sixty-eight people, of course, they are all trying. I mean, they are all trying. Sometimes people from the seventies with the the who who did so many experiences and they are becoming fathers and mothers, and it's also very difficult sometimes to become like a father and a mother because when you are, you are part of a generation who break the limits. And everything. Sometimes you have to build a world for your son with limits, you know. And it's a story of of, of a mother who is not bourgeois at all. So she doesn't want to. I mean, she, it's it's not on her DNA to be bourgeois. So um, it's it's very strange also for her to have a son who is much more bourgeois, you know. 
I don't know if I'm, I'm clear. I'm yeah, maybe no, a little sense. bit confused. No, 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 I'm not okay, confused. Okay, it makes sense. <laughs> it makes no, sense. I, I'm not, okay, the, the, I'm not the, confused. The son is so parenting the mother in it. Well, his, his motivation to protect his mother from this guy that she's just married is partly an almost paternal kind of impulse so that yes of course but it's 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 also because i was super afraid to show the relation between the mother and the son because on screen it can be too pathological or full of pathos and i and i like this idea of the mother who is like a young woman a little bit crazy and the son who is becoming the father of his own mother yeah and i could and i imagined that it was like a nice way to talk about the relation between the mother and the son because of course, the the son is completely over. He's trying to. He's overprotecting his own mom, but it's a way also to to stay connected with her. And even she's um, sometimes she's complaining about this. Uh, her son, she's super happy, you know, because maybe in secret that that you know they're connected, like nobody is connected. Um, I mean, she 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 she. They had like a, a fusional relation like this. So you know, it's always about the game that you play between who is the master, who is the dominant, who is the dominated and everything. So this is also a way for the mother and the son to stay together. This uh, um, uh, scary feeling that the son has for his mother hmm. and his sense of protection that he... Because, you know, is uh, it's also very... Uh, an Oedipus relation and underway, you know? There's an Oedipal undertow to it, yeah. Yeah, there's, exactly. there's a rivalry Sorry. between the son and the, new, and the new husband. No, 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 you're explaining yourself very well. The other thing that struck okay. me about the film um, is the way that it's very Hitchcockian, and it reminded me a little bit of Woody Allen in his more Hitchcockian moments too, particularly Manhattan <laughs> Murder Mystery, because there is this stakeout yeah, yeah, that yeah. happens, you know, and the son is starting is suspicious about his mother's new husband because he's just out of jail he doesn't think he's reformed and he goes and he goes following this 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 man yes. and of course he's very inept at that because he's just a kid <laughs> well, he's not just a kid but <laughs> but the uh, the 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 man being stalked is is much more expert than him so yeah i'm wanting to ask about that and that hitchcockian element especially because the score as well is very hitchcockian it re reminded me of vertigo yeah 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 of course of course not there, there is like a the, an anti um, there is a scene who was completely like a reference to vertigo of course it's uh, so the the score was uh, instead of pretending not to be inspired by vertigo, we said like, okay, from, we have to assume that and then try to make a score with uh, like a reference and an, an homage to vertigo, of course. But you know, the thing in the Woody Allen, the, the film that Woody, uh, uh, the Meurtre Mysterieux à Manhattan, this is a French title. Yeah, yeah, Manhattan I Murder think, Mystery, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the woman, the woman in the Woody Allen film is leading the situation and this is, this is the common point between the two films that the character of Noemi Merlin, Clémence, she's much more innovative and, 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 and strong than the male character. And this is, I think, the, the, the connection between the two films. It's, it's, it's about like a, a young woman who is super interested about the situation and, and, and fearless and fearless. And, 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 and the guy is completely, you know, scary, scared and everything. So my yeah. character is scared maybe like the Woody Allen's film. And also the Hitchcockian point, I think the major, how do you say that? The major ressemblance, the ma la, resemblance, la yeah. Yeah, major resemblance, it's that like, a, 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 like in Vertigo, so this is a very Hitchcockian motif. It's like a, how 
a character is going to change sometime in his own life through a special adventure. For example, at the in the beginning of Vertigo, of course, the the, the James um, um, James Stewart. Thank you very much, <laughs> <laughs> James Stewart. You know, he has a neurotic problem with the vertige because he's. Uh, uh, how do you say vertige in English? V v vertigo. Well, he suffers from vertigo. Yeah, we see it at the very beginning exactly. of the he's film. Exactly, he, he suffers yes. from the vertigo. And he's going to deal with his own pattern, you know, between the film and he, got, he has to solve something in, in, in his own fear. And this is also the same uh, situation with my character. My character is a widow and he's completely inhibited in life. And he has to he has to go over that, you know, in the situation of the film. He has to struggle his own inhibition. Yeah, and he has to overcome his grief. Against... He has to overcome his grief, doesn't he, and kind of re-enter the world. And that's where, yes, Naomi Malan's exactly. character as his partner in crime, she becomes a more enthusiastic amateur detective than he is. And then we get to the point of where course. this lovely set piece he... in, a, in a truck stop where you both are acting... You act mm -hmm. as a couple and have an argument yeah, of course. as a decoy for, yeah, as part of this heist. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. go on. No, 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 don't worry. No, And the, the adventure of the film is going to solve one of the major problems of the main character. And this is like a, a common point with this Hitchcock also. Yes. Especially Vertigo. So we were super interested about building an adventure. It's I, I didn't want to make it like a naturalistic movie, especially because I took an autobiographical point in the beginning. So I I wanted to build a story where where the adventure is not uh, banal, completely cinematographic because the movie is. Uh, not it's plausible i mean the situations are plausible but it's it's realistic but it's not naturalistic you know it's not yes the same than in life but, but also to have strong characters that the audience could understand very well and and also i, I wanted my dream was to to touch the, the the audience with the character and like this they they will follow the character as they as they want to to see them to to solve the the problems you know because it's 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 the origin of making what you make a movie i mean it's because it's cathartic you know and uh, and um, and and there is something that i was interested about it's maybe the point of what why why it's uh it because it's you know Hitchcock made movies in 60s after the psycho you know very influenced by psychoanalysis you know so he was making adventurous movies about neurosis problems of characters yeah about his problem is the character's neuroses yeah yeah um exactly sorry for my pronunciation no not at all no. naomi malan <laughs> is great in in the film and um i know that she you'd seen her in a she's been in tar recently she was in portrait of a lady on fire of course but you saw her i read in um a jacques odiard film and this film also reminds me a little bit of a jacques odiard film especially something like read my lips you know which I yes think is a this wonderful... is the movie that i pre this is the movie that i love about jacques odiard yeah, yeah it's jacques a wonderful odiard. film with um vincent cassell anyway laurent's great in it i we don't have much more time but i wanted to ask obviously um your mother is an actor and filmmaker, but of course your father too, very, very acclaimed filmmaker, Philippe Garel. Do you yeah. watch your own films or the edits of your own films with your parents, either one of them or both of them? Do you do you have a, a professional sort of artistic relationship with them being 
you know, do you ask them for advice? Yeah, yeah. Most of the time we are talking about technical problems, especially with my father. I I, I talk to him because making a movie, <laughs> you have to, to deal with uh, a poetic or narrative problems and everything. And this, um, I don't speak with no one except my script writers and my actors and everything. But the technical problems... Because sometimes technically it's it's hard to find a solution and everything, and there is few people who knows who have a solution. And my father, of course, he has a, a great experience in cinema. Well, your example, father he knows as well. How to make... Your father does amazing. Things. His inventiveness is quite his strong point. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the strongest points. Sorry, go on. Was there a moment in this film that you had his advice? You know, for example, in production, I, I, I because he made some very low budget films, so. This is also is uh, great at, at, the, at, at the fact to make low budget films. So sometimes when I miss some money, I say, "How do you save some money making the movie?" He said, "Okay, you have to cut this and this in the in the production. Like this, you can save money to inject the money in a, in another uh, department." So this kind of technical questions, but for the other st- stuff, you know, it's I, I never I never asked them. And finally, a question, why Lyon? And there's, there's some beautiful shots of Lyon in winter, beautiful, foggy sort of yeah. shots of it the city. Remind a little bit London. Yeah. yeah, and a beautiful shot outside Lyon in a, in a, on a farm, in a paddock, on a very long lens where you and Naomi Merlant are arguing about this heist and your role in it. Um, tell me about just Lyon and why there. You know, sometimes, you know, I don't have like an image of myself, an idea of myself, but a little bit. And I, I knew that I'm the typical French Parisian for the French, you know, the, the a guy who is living in Paris and I directed like three other films and who took place in Paris. So I said, I, I have to move. I have to move because I have to, I didn't want to make like a Parisian movie. So I moved to Lyon because Lyon also is a, is a very strange city because it it's full of secrets. It's hard to describe the atmosphere of Lyon because it's a great city, but it's it's a city with two rivers, you know, passing through the the the, the city. And I don't know. I like the center of Lyon, who is very historical. It looks like they didn't move for ages. But also the suburbs of Lyon are completely modern and everything. And I liked. This contrast to build a movie like a, 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 an image of the historical French city, but also with these suburbs, but not in Paris. I didn't want to shoot Paris at all, so I discovered Lyon, and uh, also and also you know Lyon has a good history about crime. You know there is so many gangs in Lyon who, that everybody knows. So all the elements you know um, made me choose Lyon for the, the for the film. And also, you know, I felt in love with Lyon and I. I didn't know well that city, and it's good also to make a movie in a city that you don't know so well because it's 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 more entertaining also, you know, because you discover preparing the movie. I was discovering so many places that I didn't know, and I was also to because when you when you make a movie, you want to how do you say dépayser the the audience? You know, you have to. I wanted to to I wanted the audience to have like an exotic experience watching yes, yes, the film. Yes, take, take them out of their and, own and, habitat. And, yeah. Exactly. And to shoot in Lyon, it was like a good also, it's, it was a good choice because people, that, you know, French didn't know so well Lyon. You've done a good job at um, okay. uh, creating a, a really attractive vision of the city and a very sinister one and mysterious one too. Very, very fascinating and intriguing Lyon you've put on screen. Louis Garel, thank you very much.
No, thanks. Thanks to have me, and, and sorry for the the people who are listening the the radio transmission for my terrible French accent. Sometimes I know it's charming, but sometimes it's very painful, and I hope I'm not so so painful at all. Thank you very much. Louis Gorel, director of The Innocent, which is the kind of breezy good time that's hard to find at the movies these days. It's not devoid of deeper meaning, as you've heard, but it's brimming first and foremost with a relish for storytelling that's playful and fun. Go see it. Thinking about The Innocent as a work of genre cross-pollination, comedy, thriller, family drama, I was reminded of this same characteristic in the films of Korean master Bong Joon-ho this week as I was looking over the list of a new survey of Korean films screening from next week at the Golden Age Cinema in Sydney, dedicated to K-thrillers. Director Bong has four films in the lineup, and joining me next to discuss the showcase is the Golden Age's program manager, Jess Ellicott. Jess Ellicott, welcome to The Screen Show. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me about the inspiration for your season of K-Thrillers. So I programmed this alongside my program assistant, JD. We programmed uh, a season of Bong Joon-ho's films last year and we couldn't take Memories of Murder off screen. We had to program about six sessions of it and it kept selling out. Uh, We stopped showing it in summer because it's not really a summer film, but we thought we'd bring it back and add a whole bunch of other K-thrillers because there's obviously so much demand and they're such excellent films. What what was it about Memories of Murder, do you think, that, you Mm. know, really kept people coming back? Because, I mean, maybe for people who haven't seen it, you should explain when it comes out and, and the general synopsis. Absolutely. Well, I think it is definitely the parasite effect as well as the obsession with true crime, but Memories of Murder, it's actually an early Bong Joon-ho film. It's from 2003. I don't think it got much of a release or made much of a splash in Australia at the time, but it's one of the best serial killer films ever made, I think. It follows the police investigation into South Korea's first serial killer, and it's an investigation that goes on for many, many years, and it's just so beautifully shot and atmospheric and really shows off, you know, everything we love about Bong Joon-ho's films. There is a kind of satirical element to Bong Joon-ho's sensibility as well, which I don't know if, if that extends across all these different films in the K-thriller season that you've programmed at Golden Age, but mm. I, I don't know, would you agree that that's one of the characteristics that I think people most like about Bong Joon-ho? Definitely. I think people really love that combination of humour and formal mastery and he absolutely has such a handle on narrative as well, which I think, you know, you can't pull off that satirical side without having a really strong narrative and formal base to work from. The satire is something you see throughout the series, not just in Bong Joon-ho's films, but also in films like Train to Busan, which is a zombie thriller set aboard a bullet train, or The Wailing, which is uh, one of my favourites in the series. It's a supernatural police procedural thriller that sort of has Bong Joon-ho's 
genre blend. And and what years are we talking about with this K-thriller season? I mean, what are most of the when are most of these films being made? And is there a sense that this is still ongoing in Korea or that there's or that yeah. perhaps there's been a downturn in the output where where where's the Korean film industry at in that sense? Yeah, so this series spans from 2000. We start from Barking Dogs Never Bite, which I think was a real start to like a new wave of Korean cinema, which has lasted, you know, up until Parasite in 2019 and continues to this day. I think people are still waiting, at least internationally, for the next Parasite. But from what I've heard, like cinema attendance is so strong in Korea for local films. And, yeah, I don't see a downturn in the industry at all. Barking Dogs Never Bite. Now, tell me about this because it is such a seminal film and it is one of those earlier films in this Korean wave of of thrillers and kind of, you know, thrillers that span all sorts of different, you know, have all these different sort of genre inflections. Tell me about Barking Dogs Never Bite. Barking Dogs Never Bite, it was actually a film that, my assistant programmer, JD, recommended, and I thought, oh, is this a thriller? Because I'd always heard it's a comedy, and then I checked it out and I did see that it absolutely has a thriller elements. Uh, it's a comedy about a young professor in an apartment building who absolutely cannot stand the sound of a yapping dog somewhere in his apartment, and he goes to track it down and do not-so-nice things to the dog, we shall say. Um, so yes, it may not be such a film for dog lovers. It kind of turns into this investigation of, you know, who is getting rid of these dogs in the apartment block and why are they being disposed of and who is doing strange things in the basement with these dogs. And, yeah, it's very funny and clever and beautifully shot and so... Yeah, it shows all of the promise of Bong Joon-ho's later films. Um, these films are so beautifully directed. Park Chan-wook is another great, of course, who has a couple of films. Mm-hmm. Who you've, you've programmed a couple of his films, I think, in this yeah, series. We're, mm-hmm. we're showing The Handmaiden from 2016, which was, yeah, a big film for Park Chan-wook. And it stars Kim Min-hee, who's a Hong Sang-soo regular as an heiress whose handmaiden kind of tries to seduce and destroy her. And then we're also showing Thirst from 2009, which stars Bong Joon-ho's regular collaborator Song Kang-ho. And that's actually a vampire thriller. Uh, Song Kang-ho stars as a Catholic priest who turns into a vampire and that sort of awakens his bloodlust as well as his sexuality like he starts to desire his friend's wife and sort of be challenged by all of these urges that you know challenge his identity as a priest it's a really interesting film is there something thematic that sort of you see running through all the films whether that's an attitude towards authority or hypocrisy moral hypocrisy especially is there something that we can draw from all of these films that kind of points to a I don't know, just something that unifies them as a kind of generational statement almost. Yeah, I think all of these films are very much looking at what's happening in Korean society. Like they're all socio-political thrillers, I would say. You know, even if they're supernatural or it's a police procedural, they're always you know, casting an eye to what's happening in society and interpreting that 
through a blend of genres. What does that mean when it comes to the role of someone like a detective or someone with, you know, who's traditionally given an authority mm. or, or a... Yeah, they they almost act as the role of judge of the society. I would say a lot of the detectives in these films are kind of bumbling fools and the problem they're trying to solve kind of gets the better of them or they realise that they're too small to deal with it. And therein lies, I guess, a lot of the comedy in some of these films as well. Do you have a favourite film? My favourite film in the series is definitely Memories of Murder. And the one I'm most excited to show is probably The Wailings. That hasn't returned to cinemas since it came out in 2016. Supernatural police procedural that has those blends of like social critique and comedy and formal mastery. It has it all. Jess Ellicott, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about this showcase of Korean thrillers. Best of luck with it. Thanks so much. Jess Ellicott, programmer at the Golden Age Cinema in Sydney, and that series of K-thrillers starts next week and runs into winter. Some of those films are, of course, available online if you can't get along to the Golden Age. I started this episode of The Screen Show with a film starring Noemi Medellon, and I thought I'd end with another, revisiting the interview I recorded with filmmaker Celine Chamar back in 2019 about her film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is currently available to stream over at SBS On Demand. Portrait of a Lady on Fire is set in 18th century France in a grand but remote country house by the sea. It's about a female artist, played by Madeleine, who arrives disguised as a handmaid to paint the portrait of a young noblewoman. The reason she's in disguise is that her subject does not want to sit for this painting because she knows it will be used as a kind of calling card sent by her mother to a fiancé in faraway Milan who wants proof of the noblewoman's beauty and grace before he goes through with this arranged marriage. So begins Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a straight hook for a queer love story, full of repressed desire and combustible gazes, with a mysterious, almost Hitchcockian woman, played by a fierce, beautiful Adele Chanel, as the noble woman at its centre. Writer-director Céline Chama made this film after an urban coming-of-age drama about African-French teenagers called Girlhood. A big leap, you might think. But both films explore what happens when women are together, away from the gaze of men. The story takes a turn in Portrait of a Lady on Fire when the noblewoman's mother, played by Valeria Golino, leaves the house for a few days. And suddenly the artist and her subject are alone together. They enjoy glorious independence and the romantic floodgates open in vivid, intense detail. The young maid in the house, meanwhile, played by Luana Badrami, has her own moment of truth in a thoughtful and surprising middle act. Celine Schummer explores the hypocrisies of class, gender and even art in Portrait of a Lady on Fire and for a breathtaking moment shows the rules don't apply. She's coming up. Je suis peintre. L'homme intéressé par ma fille est Milanais. Nous partons là-bas si le portrait lui plaît. Il a épuisé déjà un peintre avant vous. Que s'est-il passé Je ne sais pas. 
Well, Celine Shama, welcome to The Screen Show. Thanks for having me. Now, tell me about this setting. Uh, in the 1700s, it's the first time you've made a period piece. W- would this be one of the biggest challenges you've set yourself as a filmmaker, uh, imagining this world? Well, it didn't feel like like that, actually. I uh, really tried to... I thought of it as the same job. Uh, cinema is uh, always a reconstitution. Even when you're looking at the contemporary world, it's strong decision about what you're going to look at and how you're going to look at it. The fact that it's set in the past just gives you another world to apply your reconstitution philosophy to. But uh, I think it was the funniest, most exciting challenge, yes. Tell me about... I mean, it's a film that contains... A uh, very strong criticism of power and the way that power was wielded by men at the time, and as you say, it's also it also works on an allegorical level. It's a film that reflects back to us today too. But but you've made a film essentially set in an isolated country house inhabited by by women. There there is no visible patriarch, and even the husband to be is off screen. Tell me about that choice. Well, um, I didn't want to tell about an impossible love story. I wanted to show a love story in all its possibilities. And um, even though, you know, we, we are set in a very oppressive world, but it's official. So I didn't want to lose time having to portray enemies, obstacles, uh, because globally the film uh, doesn't rely on any conflict. It relies on strong um, new power dynamic between the characters and uh, to, to let that power dynamic equality and its surprises uh, and its joy to, to, to let that power dynamic rise, you have to get rid of the ancient one. So you mustn't put men in the frame. You mustn't put, put the old negotiation and the old conflict in the frame um, to have this new experience and to give back you know, the, their, present, their present time to these women of the past. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it leads me to the question about the idea of the muse, which is commonly understood in art history as kind of the female who inspires the male artist. And and it strikes me that this film is saying some interesting things about about that concept and deconstructing it a little bit. I mean, tell me about how the idea of the muse changes in what I gather is, I guess, the more equal relationship of two queer women of the same age. Tell me about what you wanted to explore in that in that relationship and who's looking at who and so forth. Because I think the film does it very, very interestingly. Yeah, the film is really trying, trying to also be playful and harvest that uh, sitter and, uh, and artist situation. On, on the first level, that is the level of the film. I mean, they have a uh, love dialogue that is also uh, a creation dialogue, very collaborative. And actually, you know, it's inspired from my own way of working. And I think... You know, most of the fake news has been about this um, uh, muse and artist relationship um, because, you know, women were not given the opportunities to be artists. The opportunities they were given to, to be in the room was to be a model. And I think they seized that, that opportunity. Um, that's how they did art. And, um, and they put their heart and their brain into this. So it was about, yeah, telling it, I think, the, the right way of the way I experienced it. And to have this, um, yeah, this narrative built on this power dynamic of equality, and I picked the two leads, um, thinking a lot about that. They have the same age, they have the same height, which is really important in cinema. And um, and there is no intellectual domination, and we are not playing with social hierarchy. So basically, 
getting rid of everything we got, you know, thought of, even to make a good film or to make a good scene, to have a good negotiation between the two characters. And I think this brings um, this brings surprises. This brings novelty because if there's yeah, if there's not this old power dynamic, that then you don't know what to expect. And it's the same between the model and the artist intellectual dialogue. You know, if uh, being critical without being conflictual makes you or without being competitive perhaps as well there's 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 a kind of criticism that's not a there's not a rivalry yeah i mean it's interesting there is there are two i don't think it's giving anything away to say that there, there is there is initial attempt at painting this portrait which doesn't go well and that is the catalyst for this dialogue to between the sitter Played wonderfully by Adele Hanel yeah. and and the artist Naomi Merlin. It, it's a catalyst to to enrich their dialogue, but it is all about. It struck me as a moment where it's almost like you're saying that this female artist in this very oppressive time has kind of internalised a kind of male gaze in a way, and she has to free herself of that to paint this portrait properly. Exactly. Yes. Totally, and she she escapes from, and that's where the the, the film shows also the yeah how love is an education to art, and also art has a as a part in our love stories because it's yeah it's that dialogue that's gonna it's in, it's within that dialogue that the painter is gonna feel seen, and that's where we change the power that's dynamic of who's looking. If somebody's looking at somebody, then you know they're looking back, and um, and this goes also with the thread. The whole Orpheus and Eurydice dynamic in the film. Well, the Orpheus is story is in the film. Yes. Well, I found that very interesting. Did, yes. Did you always have the Orpheus myth as a key allegory in the centre of this film? No, it was the, the a thing that that came at the very last in the process of writing to actually create unity between different layers in the film um, and the fact that, you know, it's, it's the present of a love story, but it's also the memory of a love story. Um, and that, um, yeah, it, so this thread came in the end to actually yeah, create the sense of unity and making the script even more playful. And um, so, no, it was, it was kind of an epiphany, actually. You've said that this film is a film that doesn't rely on the conventional ideas of sort of conflict and so forth. And and therefore it offers some surprises. And I think one of the surprises is a kind of crossing of class barriers that happens in the middle of this film. Um, the film becomes focused on the three women, the two lovers, the painter and her sitter, um, but also uh, the character of a maid. And for a while, the three of them have this very equal relationship based on on solid in solidarity, which and I don't want to sort of give away what happens there, um, but tell me about this third character of the maid who is elevated to an equal uh, in, in the film, and where she came in in the sort of writing process in terms of draft. Was she a later edition or was she there from the beginning? No, she was there from the beginning because I really wanted to. Embody and portray sorority at some point in the film to to give that feeling to people like that's what it feels like uh, to give them that experience and so the the there was this strong arc dynamic for this servant character but I then also decided you know it's also about what you don't show and I never I never portray her as a servant we never she's never objectified 
the, mo- the movie tries to objectify nobody. That's also why there were no, no men in it. I didn't want to objectify men. Well, you also, um, you, there's a moment where you, I think when, when the servant does, say, dish out dinner or so forth, it's, it's in a long shot. So we see all of them together in the frame. We're not sort of looking at her. I know what you're saying. Yeah, you haven't broken up the mise-en-scene so that we're looking at the servant serving. It's just one sort of tableau. Exactly. And, and she, you know, she's never with the mother, for instance. Otherwise, you, you would think in a film like this little servant would be near a bus. And, you know, we don't even know if she knows about the love story. We don't even know what she thinks. She's not this servant character that's listening to doors. And, you, you know, that, so it's about also getting rid of that, uh, of that protocol around those kind of characters and, and allow them to, to have an impact the narrative when it's needed. So, you know, she's not really here for the, at least the, the first 50 minutes. <laughs> and then she becomes this character. And um, that was part of the, of the whole political process of writing the film. Was there a particular reason you cast Valeria Golino as the mother, as this Italian mother? And, and the whole Italian link. I mean, the man that this woman is sort of promised to is living in Milan. Tell me about that Italian link. I mean, was it a simple question of a co-production arrangement or was it, you know, or was it more to it than that? Tell me yeah. about that. No, there was no co-production implied. The, the film is totally, totally made with French money. And, um, well, I think two things. It was uh, something quite intimate. I mean, uh, I'm from Italian culture. I go to Italy all the time and I have family there. And it's also about this link that that existed at the time, that still existed between the arts, between Italy and France. So it was also about this, yeah, this moment of Europe. Wanted to show that also because I wanted to work with Valeria Golino. I mean, the the part I had her in mind for the part since the beginning because I was also really wanted not to have this uh, bitter old women character, but to have a young woman. I wanted her to be fifty to be beautiful, to have her, um, her own desires, her own project, and getting back to her, to Milan was a, was one that I liked because it was also... Yes, she wants to marry yeah. off her daughter to someone in Milan to kind of enable her to go back to Italy. Yes, that's quite clear. Yeah. And there's a wonderful moment where she expresses her joy at that thought of going back, and it's a slightly mischievous yeah. kind of youthful joy about the fun <laughs> that she'll have if she can kind of relocate there and... Yeah. Yeah, and the fun that and the fact that her daughter will be less bored. So it's about let's you know, there's all the ambiguity of this, but really wanted yeah to have a to, to have new representation around that character. The fact that she was 50 years old to me was really really important. You never see women that are 50 years old on screen. They never have a journey. So no, she's a great actor. I also like very much the whole mood of the film and especially the setup. Um, it's almost Hitchcockian, this notion of the yeah. mysterious young woman who has to have her portrait painted and the fact that this enterprise to paint this portrait has been attempted by another and there's, there's failure in that. It, that was attempted and, and, and it didn't go well. Someone else tried and failed. Yeah. And there's this idea of the sister who's committed suicide. So there's a very sinister air to this place. Yeah. And it's almost like a gothic novel at the beginning. Did you have fun with that? Yeah. Because it strikes me as a really enjoy, uh, you know, you've done, you set it up so well. I'm just wondering as a director, it must have been a lot of fun to set that up and create that mood. 
Yeah, yeah. It's really the moment where I, as the film is then departing, it's really the moment where I also had fun crafting something that would feel classical. Uh, that would feel like yeah, classical Hitchcockian. Um, that would feel like cinema, and then subvert that um, by yeah, changing the the narratives. But so this setup, yeah, was actually. You know, so so where you, you you feel like okay, you're making cinema. I don't dialogue with history of cinema much, but for this particular first fifteen minutes of the film, twenty minutes of the film, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, and we're thinking also about Jane Campion. Yeah, yeah, Hitchcock. Uh, yeah, the and, piano um, or something. Absolutely. Yeah, and then yeah. but strangely, there's it's, there's very little music in the film, so you've also already you're undercutting those expectations of classical cinema. Though you've got what you've got a couple yeah. of musical cues that are used beautifully, I have to say. So you're sort of doing both things, and uh, so I think that's what makes the film so fascinating from the very beginning. Well, thank you for thinking that. Thank you very much, Celine Chama, for speaking to me on the screen show. Thank you. Director Celine Shammer, a conversation I recorded back in December 2019. Her film Portrait of a Lady on Fire is available to stream over at SBS On Demand. A final note before I go to mark the death of Australian cartoonist, satirist and filmmaker Bruce Petty, who died last week. He was the one-time partner of film critic and my predecessor here at RN, Julie Rigg, and the two remained close to the end. Bruce won an Oscar for Best Animated Short Film for Leisure in 1976. I highly recommend it. You can search for it online. His 2007 feature film, Global Haywire, was an extraordinary essayistic mix of animation and live action that pondered nothing less than the fraught and paradoxical history of the West. It's on DVD and hopefully will return to streaming platforms soon. Bruce Petty was inventive, he had a formal flair, his drawing style pulsated with energy. It was both anarchic and meticulous. He could engage with big questions and express complex thoughts in just a few strokes of a pen. Vale, Bruce Petty. This has been The Screen Show. I'm Jason DeRosso. Producer Sarah Corbett and the ABC RN sound engineers are, as always, the ones that get the show on the road every week. Thanks to them. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.